You're listening to Icebreakers, the podcast exploring all things Canadian and Eurasian, business, culture, and personalities. The series is produced by Serba, the Canada-Eurasia-Russia Business Association. We're a non-profit supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. I'm your host, Nathan Hunt, one of the founders of Serba and former chairman of the National Board. I invite you to tune in regularly for valuable insights relating to the region. Hello, everybody. I'm joined today by Frank Albo, a Canadian architectural historian. He is the academic inspiration behind The Hermetic Code, 2007, and the author of Astana, Architecture, Myth, and Destiny, 2017. Albo is currently an adjunct professor of history at the University of Winnipeg, where he specializes in architecture, Freemasonry, and the Western esoteric tradition. For his discovery into the Freemasonic symbolism at the Manitoba Legislative Building, recounted in the Hermetic Code, Albo has been dubbed Canada's Dan Brown and one of Winnipeg's foremost architectural historians. Since 2009, Albo has led Hermetic Code tours of the Manitoba Legislative Building, which more than 45,000 people uh, have attended. I know Frank holds uh, graduate degrees in ancient Near East languages, art history, and a PhD in the history of architecture from the University of Cambridge. Dr. Albo, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. I'm thrilled to be with you, Nathan. What can you tell us about the, the, the Freemasonic tradition in Canada? Let's just start off with Canada. What, what, uh, in a nutshell, what did you discover in your research connected to the Manitoba Legislative Building. This is, I, I heard you explain this in our preliminary call and I was just fascinated by the story. Well, Freemasonry should be understood as a medieval guild in which the elements of architecture became uh, metaphysical truths. So if you look at the Gothic cathedrals of that era, you see that the um, unnamed master craftsmen using the most rudimentary tools of geometry, elements that you'd find in a grade five protractor set, were used to erect hundreds of millions of tons of stone. That tradition was initiatic. And what I mean by that is it formed a brotherhood in which you elevated through the grades based on your knowledge of architecture. Uh, several centuries hence, it turned into many other things, a political movement, a philanthropic organization. But remarkably, in my own backyard of Winnipeg, a British architect at the turn of the 20th century, who was also a Freemason, was uh, elected to be the architect of the Manitoba Legislative Building. And when he designed this building, he imbued inside of it elements of Freemasonry, its symbolism and vocabulary. And on the surface, it functions as a provincial house of government. But architecturally speaking, it is endowed with metaphysical principles that he believed would make the people that walked through it more intelligent, better balanced, and altogether more civilized. So that's really the, uh, the raison d'etre of Freemasonry. It uses architecture as a vehicle for moral, spiritual, ethical illumination. Can you give us just a few examples? What type of architecture elements are, are conducive to, uh, to this civility? You know, maybe we can help our brothers in the United States of America. They, they seem to have a problem with that these days. In, in relation to the Manitoba Legislative Building, there were uh, four principles that uh, uh, were important as part of the vocabulary of mystical elevation. 
One and the primary one is geometry, but also there was numerology and the dimensions of King Solomon's temple. So in Freemasonry, architecture isn't just a mere uh, aspect of building. It represents a divine science that was directly imparted from the mind of God to the Adam in the Garden of Eden. And with this imparting of divine knowledge, the, the tools, the, the, the necessary tools for advancing this were the mystification of geometry. And what I mean by geometry isn't simply A squared plus B squared equals C squared, but geometry as the source of all knowledge, the kernel of all advancement, truth, and wisdom. It's a kind of touchstone of divine power. So if there is a geometry in nature, then you could draw down from this element or sacred geometry and, and imbue the divine into form on earth. So uh, geometry is probably the most important element of it, but uh, there are other uh, subterranean qualities too. Uh, so I mentioned the dimensions of King Solomon's temple, and that's because King Solomon's temple is God's first and only architectural project. He, he labors uh, intensively, uh, as it were, at least the author of the Book of Kings, that uh, each finite detail of the temple should be understood. We know more about the curtains and the Holy of Holy of King Solomon's temple than how God created the sun, the moon, and the stars, biblically speaking. And because of that level of detail, intellectuals for the last 2,000 years have probed into the uh, esoteric meaning of every single uh, uh, element of it. Uh, the cubit dimensions, for instance, that is the unit of measurement that was used to build the temple. Isaac Newton spent 30 years of his life actually trying to uh, look into it as a way of understanding the architecture of the universe. So uh, for us, it may seem rudimentary, but uh, from a Masonic point of view, it's a, uh, an element of divine truth. So you're talking about the temple that was destroyed. You're not talking about the Wailing Wall, the temple that we can view in Jerusalem today. That is correct. I'm talking about the original temple, King Solomon's temple, which uh, was destroyed in 586 by the Babylonians. And because it was destroyed, it was understood as the paradise lost. The only project God was directly and instrumentally involved in, architecturally speaking, is destroyed. And as it's destroyed, it, the, the attempt to rebuild it becomes a, a, a metaphor for the reformation of humankind. Even if you look at the Gospels, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it again. Well, obviously, that was a reference to the human body. But uh, metaphysically speaking, the temple representing the archetype of uh, uh, perfection gets understood as how can we physically reconstruct it. And this element of this enduring image of the temple as that which was destroyed and should be rebuilt is the, the cornerstone of all Masonic initiation. It's, it all revolves around the original construction of King Solomon's temple. Good Lord. Well, I bet we could talk about this for another half an hour. But yeah. uh, we are here to talk about Kazakhstan. <laughs> Indeed. So let's transition, let's segue with your permission to uh, mm -hmm. the city of, of Astana. Now, we have to clarify to our listeners that the city has recently been renamed. Was it a year ago? Was it two years ago? 
uh, in honor of the first president of Kazakhstan. It's now called Nur Sultan, which is his, his first name. But uh, we will refer to it interchangeably as Nur Sultan, as Astana, because when you wrote your book, it was Astana. What can you tell me about Astana, and why does it have any relevance to Canadians? Uh, how, uh, what are the parallels with Canadian architecture and the Masonic symbols that you've discovered there? Well, I think to elaborate here, we need to take a, a bit of a detour into the past, and I'll tell you how I got introduced to uh, Astana. Uh, Freemasonry and the Canadian connection. So about, um, let's see, five years ago, I was preparing a graduate course on utopian cities. I'd long been fascinated by the idea of reconstructing paradise on earth. So I was preparing this graduate course in the Department of Architecture at University of Manitoba, um, which was going to be framed from Plato's Atlantis to Nazarbayev's Astana. So this age old quest. And curiously enough, almost with a tinge of mythic romanticism, as I was doing uh, uh, my internet research, I stumbled upon, which is very easy to do, that if you just simply type in Astana or Nur Sultan plus architecture, you will uh, generate millions of hits that all point to the same seemingly nefarious connection that Astana is the new world order of the Illuminati, or it's some global headquarters of Freemasonry. And having done my doctoral research into Freemasonry, uh, and, and actually not knowing this at the time, I became utterly enchanted. And so there on my computer screen were all of these nebulous threads to uh, Freemasonry and Astana, namely based on the an analysis, people's curious analysis of some of the strange architectural buildings in Astana. We'll get into that. So at the exact same time, I get an impromptu call from the government of Manitoba asking if I'd be willing to tour the uh, uh, ambassador of Kazakhstan to Canada and his wife who were in that morning. And uh, so you can understand how, how interesting this was. This was like the call to action. Everything on my computer screen, reading Kazakhstan, uh, uh, Freemasonry, and there, out of the blue, uh, this call to tour the ambassador of Kazakhstan to a building endowed, the, the Manitoba Legislative Building, endowed with Freemasonic principles. So um, after the tour, I, we, we met for breakfast, and I said to uh, the ambassador, um, uh, Jigala, wonderful man with a PhD in history, by the way, so I knew he would be interested in this. I said very brashly, uh, I know what your country's doing. And he said, oh, oh, okay, what, what are we doing? And I said, you're using architecture, monumental architecture, to announce that you've arrived on the world stage. Well, that got his attention because he said, yes, that's precisely what we're doing. And uh, I said, well, you're missing something. Well, what are we missing, Dr. Alba? I said, you need a foundation myth. Probably what you're thinking, well, what is a foundation myth? And I said, this is the, the importance to the initiation of all great cities are tied to a foundation myth, whether it is Jerusalem or Rome or Constantinople or Athens. There is some primordial myth that connects them. And uh, he said, that's a great idea. Who's going to do that? And I felt that was <laughs> destiny, as it were, to do so. And off I went to uh, Astana to begin my research. And it began into uh, a four-year love affair. So that is the Canadian Freemasonic connection to the capital. So what principles have you uncovered? You, you, you've stated in your book that there are three uh, very modern 
principles that are imbued in the architecture of Astana, but, but, that, but they're separate from Masonic principles, or are they incarnation, reincarnation of Masonic principles? Talk about the principles that you discovered. Ah, great idea. Now, these principles aren't per se uh, Masonic in nature. What I do is I look at what it was that led the public to this conclusion that Freemasonry was somehow uh, imbued in the capital. And uh, it, it's, it's rather simple. If you see the three principal buildings in the capital today, the most, uh, perhaps the most visually iconic, it is the uh, Pyramid of Peace and Reconciliation, a pyramid. It is the uh, Nazarbayev Center, which is um, predicated on an all-seeing eye that peers into the sky. And the third is the Kazakhstan Pavilion, which was the center pavilion, the center giant sphere for the uh, 2017 World Expo. So you have a sphere, a triangle, and an all-seeing eye. And those elements on their own... I, for, I'll interrupt you for a second. Is that all-seeing eye the same thing you see on the back of a U.S. dollar? Correct. But it, 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 I, we immediately make the association that the all-seeing eye is some Masonic print, uh, um, symbol, but it was co-opted by Freemasons. And it was co-opted because it represented the eye of providence, the eye of eternal truth that been used in Roman Catholic churches since the 15th century. It was the notion that um, God watches over and peers over all. And it was quickly adopted by the founding fathers, who many of which were, were Freemasons, and, and placed on the great seal of the United States, and then therefore on the back of the $1 bill. But most people don't know this genealogy. And to me, it's these labyrinthine threads that, that show the ever-enduring legacy of the Temple of Solomon, the ever-enduring legacy of Freemasonry in environments that the architects and even the builders themselves do not know that they're drawing from. And so I, uh, it was incumbent upon me, I, I felt, to show the ideology behind this and also the, the, the subterranean roots of it, that kind of doing a reverse archaeological dig on the architectural ideas and principles and design vocabulary of the capital. So what symbolism did you see in the, in the sphere, in the pyramid, in the eye? Well, first of all, it's important to understand that symbols are extraordinarily powerful. They're multivalent. We think in symbols. So uh, if you see a recurring symbol like a, uh, an, an octagon, you might immediately think of a stop sign. And why is that? It's because culturally that's been passed down and generated. Uh, so similarly, these, these symbols are so powerfully uh, um, uh, uh, connected to our historical memory that just by the very sight of them, they jar in the back of our minds uh, uh, ideas that they're connected to something, which they may not uh, be connected to. But these three, an all-seeing eye, a pyramid, and a giant sphere, led many people to associate it with Freemasonry. What I articulate in the book is to say those things can be found in many cities all around the world. The uh, truly Masonic element behind Astana is the unknown reservoir by which the uh, architect of the master plan and the star architects that built Astana drew upon in their effort to build a paradise on a barren tabula rasa. That 
is a fundamental theme of Freemasonry. That is that architecture among all disciplines known to the human mind have the capacity to inspire civic truth, to make people uh, uh, morally aware. And so that element, that age old uh, uh, hope and dream and promise of Freemasonry, that architecture can do that, had been used at various times throughout the centuries. But in this case, in, uh, um, uh, in the creation of Astana, that legacy of knowledge was unknowingly being implemented in, in the capital. And I felt it was up to me to kind of show what was behind the veil. And in order to do so, I decided to make the, the story that much more intriguing. I used rigorous academic knowledge about architecture and did a full-scale uh, architectural analysis, historically speaking, of the capital and its buildings, but then went a step further and showed that these buildings are actually uh, plot devices of a myth. And this myth, as you mentioned at the beginning of your question, relates to three fundamental principles, which I identify as the three greatest threats of our time. Religious extremism, planetary sustainability, and the proliferation of nuclear weapons. To me, these are the great threats of our time. And the buildings in Astana and, and the, the very uh, um, reason for its being are meant to highlight religious tolerance, planetary uh, ecology, and the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. And curiously enough, those very three buildings that are associated with Freemasonry are the very ones that show those three principles elevated. Okay, the pyramid. Well, what is the pyramid oh, about? Fascinating, fascinating. Yeah, I want to hear the details. Tell me the details. Okay. <laughs> this so is fascinating stuff, Frank. Do you see, you see what I'm saying? So on the surface, you see a giant glass pyramid and your superficial uh, uh, response is, ah, a great pyramid equals Freemasonry. Well, in actual fact, the function of the pyramid, the pyramid of peace uh, and reconciliation, is for world religious leaders to meet at the apex of a giant glass pyramid once every three years to discuss one thing, religious tolerance. That is the reason behind the pyramid. And to me, a great threat of our time and a most important thing for a new city looking with an eye to the West to, to be a beacon and lighthouse for. Well, let's take uh, uh, the, the great sphere of uh, the Kazakh Pavilion, now the Astana International uh, um, Financial Center. The, the sphere, which is the showpiece of the 2017 World Expo, was meant to showcase what? The whole theme of the World Expo was planetary sustainability, how buildings can be used and be built in such a way that they would um, uh, elevate the uh, ecology of the planet. So a giant sphere, you immediately think, ah, some uh, a nefarious Masonic symbol. Well, actually, no. It is um, meant to be a showpiece to say that the cities of the future should be designed with sustainable intent. And then we take we take ourselves. Is it not the is it not the largest sphere in the world? I read somewhere. Is that right? Yeah, that that it remains the the largest sphere in the world. And if you take the entire project in in its entirety. Astana or Nursultan is basically a $60 billion experiment. And what is the experiment? The experiment is to say that architecture may be in that old Masonic promise 
maybe architecture is the vehicle to change the world. You see where I'm going with this? So Fascinating. Okay, so so if you if you look at the um, uh, the All Seeing Eye or the Nazarbayev Center, the Presidential Library, well, what has been the uh, Nazarbayev's greatest longstanding global uh, legacy? In my opinion, it has been his effort as the uh, uh, the leader, the Tom Brady, as it were, of non uh, uh, nuclear proliferation. So that, more than anything else, is the uh, 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 the intent, as I see it, of the Nazarbayev Center. So, was not Kazakhstan the first country to renounce its nuclear arsenal? Wasn't that the case? Absolutely. And if you could think of uh, uh, after the the fall of the Soviet Union, Kazakhstan was ranked fifteenth of the post-Soviet uh, uh, countries to succeed. And what did they inherit? the fourth largest arsenal of nuclear material. And the other thing they inherited was that it happened to be a detonation site for a massive deployment of nuclear warheads. So if there's any country on earth that understands the importance and uh, uh, and perils of nuclear proliferation, it's Kazakhstan. And that is one of the first things that the president uh, uh, signed off. And it's been that very principle of peace, which to me, runs at the, the heart of why I see Kazakhstan today as a lighthouse uh, for the future, because part of its nomadic heritage has been adaptability. The religious tolerance of Kazakhstan in general is a potpourri of, uh, of religious faiths, all existing peacefully under uh, one umbrella of national identity. And uh, the, the same is true of its thousands of years of heritage of uh, um, uh, uh, peacekeeping. So uh, to me, the, 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 uh, what I was endeavoring to do with this book was to try to tell the, the story of, of Kazakhstan, the region of Central Asia in general, not just Kazakhstan, but the entire region, as having its own um, foundation myth. And it was up to me to archaeologically recover it in thought and in form and to look at the buildings as the characters in this device. So if we were to take, say, uh, the Lord of the Rings, there are characters that fulfill these archetypical themes. Instead of having characters, I looked at the buildings as being part of archetypes of this universal tale of peace, tolerance, and sustainability. And then to make that matter even that much more interesting, I, I, I encoded the book, woven within the text and the images of the book is a puzzle. And I placed it there purposely to create sleuths out of a worldwide audience to say, if I'm going to really engage in this myth, you know, I must delve into it, like literally just step inside of the text. Um, so that was, for me, a, a plot device. Yeah, well, as you know from our first conversation, you hooked me with that because I'm going to be uh, solving that uh, b before the end of the year. So watch yourself. Good stuff. <laughs> So you say that the architectural of architecture of Astana imbues religious tolerance, nuclear non-proliferation, 
and sustainable ecology. But there are other elements in the city. There are, there's a Chinese pagoda. There's a, a, a Dutch windmill. There are, are various uh, proliferations of uh, European countries, of uh, African countries even. How do you explain this? You know, some people have called Astana Disney on the step. Uh, what do you think about that? I, I think it's a very apt uh, description, and I don't mean this uh, in as a comment of derision, but actually of high praise, because uh, Walt Disney had spent uh, 20 years, he was more than anything else, he was interested in solving the problems of urban sprawl and the disease of cities. And so uh, Disneyland and Epcot and the fact that he surrounded himself, not by architects, but by Imagineers, he set out to solve the problems of urban development. And that element is also true, that, that same effort is also true with Nazarbayev and Astana. So yes, on the surface, you could say, oh, it's the uh, um, uh, Dubai of the staff, or it's the, um, the uh, Eurasian Disney. It, it's kind of been a catchphrase, but I see that there is a much deeper, uh, more poignant element to it. So you did mention these uh, multicultural uh, elements in the design of the capital. What I, I describe in the book is I describe this as a typology, a style of architecture, just in the same way that uh, Gothic is designated by flying buttresses and pointed arches and classical buildings are designated by pediments and ionic columns or columns in general. We can look to Astana as being an innovator of an entirely new style of architecture, which I describe as Eurasianism. And Eurasianism is the blending of architectural and cultural motifs that come from uh, uh, the world family. So um, uh, you, you can find uh, postmodernism, Russian Baroque, uh, neoclassicism, Gothic, all of these different elements of architecture there seamlessly integrated in uh, the design of the capital. And that form of revivalism, it comes, uh, speaks to the very heart of Nazarbayev's uh, political credo. He wanted to make uh, Kazakhstan the, uh, just as St. Uh, Petersburg was meant to be a window to the West, Nazarbayev wanted to be Astana to be a window to the East and the West. And in order to do that, there is this blending of architectural styles. So if you want to see the most visual reflection of Kazakhstan's cultural inclusivity and global uh, progressiveness, it's in the aesthetics of the capital. Postmodernism, Central Asian art, Islamic decoration, all forms of architectural revivalism. And I should point out that revivalism typically on its own has been used to uh, perfect the state. In the Renaissance, classical revivalism was used by the Italian state to show the beauty of the uh, of perfected state like Florence. In the 19th century, France, Germany, and England used Gothic revivalism to show the uh, national sentiment of uh, its, its Christian religious primacy. If you look at America, it uses uh, Beaux-Arts classicism to reflect American republicanism. Now let's fast forward to uh, Nursultan. It uses revivalist architecture in an entirely different way, not to showcase national interest, but supra-national interest, because it draws upon all of these different 
cultural ideas and uses them to aesthetically uh, showcase the capital. And that's what makes it totally unique of all capital cities. You could superficially say, oh, it, uh, it's like Las Vegas on steroids. Oh, no. Or nationalist steroids. Oh, no, no. This is a totally unique thing because the, the, um, the, the president also made myth a major category of the design and implementation of the capital. How do we know this? Well, let's go to the tourism uh, uh, pilgrimage site. Anybody going to Nursultan goes to the very center of the capital, to that uh, uh, strange bulbous building called the Baitiri. And what is the Baitiri? The bird's nest. It, the bird's nest, we call it. <laughs> okay, you, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's been called the lollipop and, and, and many other things. But it is the, the, the one building that, that well, uh, the president was involved in many buildings, but he actually hand drew the uh, uh, original design of the Baitirik. I don't know if you knew that. And that was faithfully right. executed by a Kazakh architect. And, and what he wanted to do was to imbue myth into the capital in, in much the same way that uh, his, his predecessor, the founding father, uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson, knew that classical Palladian revivalism, the architecture of, of the classical Greece needed to be the vocabulary style of choice for the capital. That is Washington, D.C. Uh, uh, Nazarbayev said, not only are we not going to draw on one style, but many styles, we'll call it Eurasianism, but I'm going to add a, a square root to the, the, the power of the state. I am also going to have myth be imbued into the destiny of the capital. He understood at the beginning that Kazakhstan, that uh, uh, Astana, which he ventured much at risk, by the way, because it was languishing at the time, to, to spend so much money on designing a capital from scratch was a huge political risk, but uh, a risk he was willing to take, and he described it as a providential project. He described it as a project, uh, uh, a spiritual, even mystical dimension to it. So if we go to the Baitirik, it is a kind of, um, not kind of, but it's uh, uh, Kazakhstan's version of the Statue of Liberty or the Eiffel Tower. It is this lightning rod in the center of the, the capital that is meant to showcase what? The tree in the garden of paradise, an age-old myth, perhaps the most repeated myth of all world cultures, is the idea of a, of a tree in the garden of paradise. I'm going to interrupt you. Describe what it looks like for most of our listeners, because many of them will not have been to Astana. The, the best way to describe it, it has a white base, which represents a tree. And this white base uh, uh, culminates into this golden orb, which re represents an egg. And this steel latticework that uh, uh, encloses the egg is like a bird's nest. And you might say, ooh, this is kind of gaudy and strange. But each element of that design it is symbolic of an age-old tale. And this age-old tale, it's also referenced in Kazakh legend, but it's, it's the most uh, um, retold story stretching all the way back to Mesopotamia, that one of the oldest myths of world history is called the tale of Itana. Very strangely, it sounds a lot like Astana. I don't think the uh, uh, Nazarbayev <laughs> knew that. But the tale of Itana begins with the opening lines, 
of a tree built uh, uh, in, the, in the center of a new capital, rising up in which an eagle plants a, uh, an egg in, in the center of the tree, and then a hero uh, uh, rises up to heaven. And the, the, the Kazakh variation of this story is that the sumruk, or this mythical bird, which is also laid everywhere throughout the capital, this phoenix bird is like the moment I mention this to you, and the next time you visit Astana, you're going to see the Sumerk mythical eagle everywhere. Lays this golden <laughs> egg inside the crown of the poplar tree. It's devoured by a snake. Oh, where have we heard that story? A tree in a garden that is circumvented by a snake. Hmm. Oh, uh, Genesis comes to mind, but we might only think of Genesis, although it's found in many other places. A warrior intercedes, kills the snake, saves the Sumuk's sacred egg, and in return, he is lifted up uh, uh, from his relegation to the underworld to uh, 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 bring about the unity of humankind. Hello, that is Nazarbayev's story 101. He is the hero that rises up from the ashes of an uncertain past, Kazakhstan's future, using myth and architecture to tell that story. That's why this capital is most unique. Now, the, the Bayateric is a tower, first and foremost. How does it unify the three elephants, uh, the, the three elements and the, uh, the uh, principles that they embody? Oh, no. It's the lightning rod. It's the, it, 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 it's, it's the beacon that lets you know we are about to enter into a mythical world. That there's uh, the great historian of religion named Mircea Iliade described life in two components. He said there is the profane world, the everyday normal world, and then there is a sacred world. And there is a line of demarcation between the two. And the moment you enter into this sacred or mythic world, you are in a, a, a whole new reality of looking. And in order, to, uh, uh, in order to make that demarcation, Nazarbayev had at the very center, all axes points of the whole capital revolve around the tree, the tree in the garden of paradise. So that lets you know, ah, I'm stepping into a new mythic world. And now once you've stepped into and taken the blue pill, as it were, okay, just let, let's use the matrix as the example. You can return back to everyday normal profane world, or do you want to enter into the mythic world? And the moment you do, there's no going back. And what I'm hoping to do with my book was to uh, make people say, do you want to step into the matrix? Because once you do, you're going to see the capital in a way that you'll never be able to turn back on. And you'll see all of these elements and be able to verifiably show, oh my gosh, this whole thing is constructed on a massive foundation myth that uses this Masonic idea of architecture as a vehicle of truth and advancement and other utopian uh, notions of the togetherness of humankind and those three fundamental principles. So we've got the three principles, religious tolerance, nuclear non-proliferation, and environmental sustainability. There's one element in the capital, and we talked about this, that is not international. It's uh, uniquely Kazakh. Uh, it's an element of nomadic life. Uh, and I'm talking about the big tent. You know, I don't know if it's the largest building. Uh, it, it certainly is one of the largest buildings. Uh, it uh, uh, is on the edge. It's close to the Canadian embassy, I know. Uh, and it's uh, a tent uh, housing one of the largest uh, trade centers or malls where people go to yeah. congregate. How, how does that fit into the architecture? Beautifully so. 
uh, uh, you're talking about that Kanshatar Entertainment Center. Now, it has a doubling device. On the surface, like these other uh, um, um, elements on the surface of buildings, it is a giant yurt, no problem. Easy peasy, no Sherlock Holmesian deduction there. Clearly, it is a modern day giant yurt. The, the nomadic device of choice that the nomads of Central Asia had built and erected. So on another level, it is a retail space for imagining Kazakh ethnicity. However, if you understand the power of the yurt, yurt isn't a, an elementary form of architecture. Every single component of a yurt has a symbolic meaning. How you walk into the yurt, where the, uh, uh, the master of the yurt sits, uh, in fact, every single component of the yurt is uh, described according to the body, the head, the, the, the shoulders, the crown. Let me just interrupt you quickly to tell people that the yurt, people might not be familiar with the word, some of our listeners, the yurt is the circular tent in which nomads lived, that they would erect, you know, put up and take down as they moved. Exactly. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, thank you for providing that clarification. And now all yurts are uh, brought together and erected around this central principle, I'm probably going to botch the, uh, 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 the pronunciation, called the Shanirach. Is that, is that how you pronounce it? I'm, I'm going with you on this one, Frank. <laughs> okay. You, without the, the, the circular opening at the center of the yurt, that is the circular opening that is passed down from father to youngest son, this, th this is the most powerful device of the state. It is an enormously powerful symbol. And what is it? It is a circle with two lines going through it in both directions. Uh, uh, in ancient Rome, that very same device was called a templum, and it was a way the Romans would use to designate the sky and divide it into these compartments. And when they would do that, and uh, uh, study the augury of birds, they could then draw down that device in the design of, of their capital cities. There are about 2,000 cities uh, throughout the world, mostly in Europe, that are designed on Roman principles of a circle, a templum, divided by two lines. That it's called the Cardo and Decumanus. That idea, age-old Roman idea, is also found in the Shanarach. And the Shanarach is what holds up the support staves that, that hold up the yurt all inter, in, interpolate through uh, the Shanarach. So, as I recall, New Jerusalem is also built on that same principle. It has a cardo and, a, and, uh, and the other word that you use. Yeah, the, the, the decumanus. So, on one level, you say, ah, this is just a decorative motif. But on another level, the Shanarach is the most important symbol of national identity in the capital. It appears on everything. You'll see it on the banknotes. It's on the national flag. It's on the official seal. It's on street art. It holds up the cylindrical frame of the palace of the, the, the school children. I think it's my favorite building in Nurseltown. It's the most beautiful building. The whole thing is held together by a giant Shanarach. And the Shanarach represents far more than just a symbol of, of holding up the, the yurt. It is meant to rouse national memory, the, the, the age of the, the nomads. It's meant to instill a sense of traditional heritage and civic pride of community and modernity. So on the surface, you say, ah, oh, this is just a shrine of consumerism looking like a giant yurt. But if you peer beyond it, there are coded psychological symbols there too that are meant to express Kazakh 
identity and the mythography of Nurseltown. That's that's great. That's great. Frank, tell us something about parallels with Canadian architecture. You've said uh, in your book that there are some things in uh, Nur Sultan that you'll find in Canada. What can you elaborate on that? Well, in the, uh, certainly in the initial design of the master plan, master plan, which they've been working on uh, for thirty years now, uh, uh, now, is that the design of the capital would follow a a master plan that would be built on that was initially integrated by the great Japanese architect Kishu Kurokawa. Now, with this master plan and the designers of the office of the master plan, they set out to the cities of the world to gather expertise from the municipal plans of Minneapolis, but mainly uh, because th these are cold capital cities, but mainly Ottawa and Toronto. So they looked at Ottawa and Toronto and they said, what can we glean? from a, a city that has had urban growth for a, a century and more that we could take the best principles of. So in the case of Ottawa, curiously enough, they had uh, um, uh, they wanted to introduce a, a, a serpentine uh, riverbank. Great, we like that. Another thing they uh, uh, included there was the height to curb ratio for, for snow. Both cities have uh, the same climactic conditions. In the case of Toronto, uh, it was the uh, Emerald Park condos uh, that were a source of inspiration. So the Emerald Towers, which punct punctuate the skyline of the, the, the capital of Nurseltown, initially uh, were found in uh, York. I believe it's even the same architect. So the, in, in Canada, in North York, the Canadian Emerald condos uh, were built by a Kazakh company, and that same Kazakh company built an almost identical uh, version of it in the capital. So it, it's not just uh, Canada, which plays a part in the architectural vocabulary of uh, Nurseltan, but many other capitals. But I'm proud to say at least those two I've been able to uh, see and deduce. Uh, perhaps there are many more. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Well, Frank, we've had a great discussion today. You've taught us many things, uh, first and foremost about masonry, but also about the, the principles uh, upon which Astana was based and uh, the modern incarnation of those Masonic principles in the architecture of the capital. Uh, uh, we've, we've learned that uh, religious tolerism, tolerance, sustainable ecology, uh, and uh, non-proliferation uh, of uh, nuclear weapons are at the heart of the capital's ar architecture. But I got to ask you a few very quick questions in closing. Just 30 seconds or more. Can you tell us first and foremost, what made you a leader? <laughs> well, uh, I, I don't consider myself a leader, perhaps a pioneer in this area of architectural discovery. Um, but if anything, it's been an insatiable quest for new discoveries and hidden truths. I like looking uh, beneath the surface of almost anything. Uh, I don't get seduced by surface appearances. I want to know what lies beneath. So if anything, it's been that quest uh, to do so. You seem to be very good at that. I, I don't even want to let you into my apartment. There's no telling what symbolism you'll find there. I'm sure plenty. <laughs> Uh, and the last question, what are your priorities? What is your greatest priority in life now? Quite simply, family, uh, uh, joy in these troubled times, and, and faith and inspiration. And coupled to all of that uh, is the role of the imagination. It's the most powerful organ of the human mind. 
Maybe reason is an organ of truth, but imagination trumps them all. So always keep imagining. Hear, hear. We have been joined today by Frank Albo, Canadian architectural historian and the author of uh, The Hermetic Code 2007 and Astana, Architecture, Myth and Destiny 2017. You've left us with some great truths today, Frank. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, please join us for later podcasts as the series continues. Thank you for joining. You've been listening to Icebreakers, the podcast produced by Serba, a nonprofit business association supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can join our LinkedIn group to send questions to guests and find more information about the podcast series in general on our website at www.serbanet.org. Thanks for tuning in.